Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm super excited to have with me Matt Levy, OAM. Matt, I was going to say is, but he's a recently retired Paralympic swimmer, having been a five-time Paralympian. This guy is a bit of a legend. Matt has been a multiple medalist at World Championships and at the Paralympics Games, and he's also a book author of two books, one called Keeping Your Head Above Water, and the other one is Brandon Dreams Big. So welcome to the podcast, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's really great to be part of the podcast, and yeah, it'd be great to share some of my insights from my long career. Yeah. So how long was that career? Just give us a little bit of a feel, like five Paralympic Games already tells us we're looking at a like 20-year span, <laughs> possibly? Yeah, so I made, my, I made my debut in 2003 on the senior team and was on every team since. So, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty big career. I had, I guess, a lot of coaches over that time and trained at AS for a bit. And, yeah, I moved around a little bit in Sydney and, and, and went, obviously, around to different countries and different states. So, yeah, it was a pretty storied career and yeah learn a lot and experience a lot and met a lot of interesting people which was really really good and learned a lot about I guess uh, not just from my for sport but also for for life as well that a lot of the the skills and stuff that I incorporated and learned from coaches from support staff to do with nutrition and psychology and all that kind of stuff certainly have helped me today good Awesome. Well, I'm hoping to pick your brain about some of that, but can you start right at the beginning? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your impairment, and how you got into swimming in the first place. Yeah, so I was born at 25 weeks, so pretty early back in 1987. Yeah. Uh, my disability were both acquired, so I uh, had a bleed on the brain in the first three or four days of, of life, which caused cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. Um, And also as a result of that vision impairment as well. And I got into swimming quite early for health reasons um, and for physio. And it was a lot easier to be in the water than it was on land. So I was in the water quite, quite early. So probably five or six to help me kind of move my arms and legs and that kind of stuff. And it kind of went from, went from there. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't like the water at first and, (laughs) and my parents and family always came to some training and helped me learn to swim and all that kind of stuff which is pretty cool mm. uh, and yeah it kind of eventually grew on me and I watched the Paralympic Games in 2000 that's kind of where I wanted to I got that kind of bug to mm. do it more competitively as opposed to swimming laps up and down the pool and started getting a bit more serious probably in 2000 I, went, I had my first probably state swimming kind of like in 99 but it was mainly I guess probably in 2000 where I kind of started to see there was an opportunity in Paralympic sport watching people with far worse disabilities than myself um, mm-hmm. at the Sydney Games I uh, unfortunately get to see the swimming but um, I saw a lot of other sports and people yep. saw people with far worse disabilities so it was really kind of the fire that was lit at that particular point and yeah I guess the rest is history and um, <laughs> yeah 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 I made, made my first team in zero three but obviously before that it was a lot of training and a lot like learning a lot of skills and early on we had a lot of development camps um, Mm -hmm. down at Narrabeen in Sydney New South Wales so that's kind of where I gained the 
framework or the understanding that sport and life is not just going to, you're not going to get out of it just by doing nothing. It's about, I guess, taking the bull by the horns and an opportunity and saying what you want to do and setting a process to get there. And that kind of helped that those kind of camps mm-hmm. were great because they kind of set, set me up from the uh, basic really understanding age, of nutrition. Yeah. yeah. So probably at 12, 13, set me up really for like understanding the basics of nutrition, like what to eat and when to eat from a psychology perspective, how to approach training, not just turning up and yeah, recovery um, and basic understanding of strength conditioning and, and the sports medicine side of things as well and how to how to cope with international travel and mm. how to cope with double sessions and and all that kind of stuff so I was really lucky in that sense that I got set up quite early from that point of view and yeah I guess I'm really fortunate because these days they don't have that luxury it's like a very very fast-paced mm. environment yeah a lot of athletes get developed quite early before that point and yeah I count myself very lucky to have the opportunity to learn those skills and learn really what a formula one car is all about like us in sport mm. you don't get out by doing nothing and you need to have i guess a oiled machine and we i learned quite early on that athletes us in sport are, are really like a formula one car it's a well oiled mm. machine and if one part's not working the whole machine's not going to be working and that was i guess really ingrained in me early um mm. coaches through watching other athletes through watching i guess their their progression and how they kind of trained and I guess I was very lucky to have my parents and good upbringing and their good mindset and and that kind of stuff as well which really helped but I think learning early on those skills really kind of helped set me up for the success and helped me develop a lot quicker. Yeah because I think I've seen a lot of Paralympic athletes a lot and some of them or actually a lot of them are still learning that even when they're starting to compete at the top level, they're still quite basic in this in their understanding of what it really takes to be a high-level athlete. So as you say, it is quite unusual that you got a lot of that grounding really, really early on in your in your early teens. So it sounds like you had a great setup. Can you tell us a little bit about your classification with two different impairments? What is your swimming classification and why does one override the other? Because you could quite easily fit into two different classes, couldn't you? Yeah, I guess so. My impairment is cerebral palsy, so brain-acquired injury, and also as a result of bleeds on the brain, I'm also vision impaired, so I can see about two, three metres centrally and no peripheral, so probably a B, B3. But I guess from my perspective, I'm in the physical classification just because of the fact that my vision impairment, it's a condition that was formed out of my physical injury. Yeah, um, okay. And I guess that kind of affects, it's connected to the brain, I guess, and how that kind of operates and the peripheral understanding of where things are and the, from a cerebral palsy perspective, it's that feel on the water and stuff as well, but it's also kind of connected with the, the vision. So like my class in swimming is S7 which is for mild to moderate disability. And I guess the, how the vision counts into that, it's connected to my brain injury and it affects my balance. It affects, I guess, the way that my body kind of moves in space and moves in the water. I guess it doesn't affect me too much physically, but I guess it's all connected 
to the brain and or connected to kind of how that kind of works in a, in a way. And um, definitely from a cerebral palsy perspective, it's um, a big, big thing is balance and low gait and low muscle tone and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind mm-hmm. of all connected to the, to the vision, vision as well. And yeah, I guess from my perspective, it wasn't easy having two disabilities in the one classification and um, I guess versing people with physical disabilities, the hardest thing I think for me was, well, it was a blessing, I guess, in not being able to see my competitors, which is um, mm-hmm. great because you can kind of focus on your own race, but it was hard yeah. when you finished the race to kind of know what you came, whether you come, came first, second or last. A lot of races in international competitions, especially Paralympics, the blocks lit up, which was really helpful. But yes, yeah, it's something to adapt. And I guess you, you're really fortunate a lot of times in Paralympic sport to do what you do and it doesn't cover every single disability. So the it, you sometimes count yourself lucky to be able to compete, um, mm. let alone at the highest level. Yeah, just because you have a disability doesn't mean you're going to be classed in a Pacific class, for example. It's really been a, a privilege to be able to compete. And yeah, I really try and mentor the, the young ones coming through in junior camps. And I'm on a couple of sporting boards and disability boards as well. So it's really mm. great for me to be able to give back to the community. To the community and, yeah. Yeah, be able to, I guess, share a bit about what I've been able to do in my career. Not so much, I guess, for the success, but more, I guess, that process and that understanding of mm-hmm. how I've got to where I've got. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote my books. It was not so much to tell a story of my journey per se. It was about telling a story of my experience and lessons that I've learned. And hopefully one of those lessons or even half of the lessons can get passed on to other people and hopefully I can change, I guess, perception. Um, mm-hmm. That's a kind of, kind of the idea that I have around it. And yeah, I guess that it's um, definitely been a journey. Yeah. And so the book, Brandon Dreams Big, is geared for kids, isn't it? Where did that come from? And why did you choose to have one that was kind of geared for adults and one that was geared for kids? Yeah. So the, I did the one, the keeping my head above water in. 2000 so mm-hmm. to, to 2020 and I did that one just to kind of compensate what I speak about to executives what I speak about to schools whoever I kind of talk to and talk about my journey kind of talks to my success framework and kind of goes through what success means to me mm-hmm. um, in a very simple and easy to understand so it kind of goes through goals and passions and then it goes through the tools and the skills that you need in your arsenal to get where you want to go and then it kind of goes through having people around you having that inner circle and then engaging that inner circle and and then from there it goes on to talk about strategy and focus and it kind of each chapter spells out a different word of success and by the end of the book you've spelled out success Mm -hmm. um and I kind of thought when I released the adults book and this is freelance so um don't make any money probably spend more money doing doing it than than you make but (laughs) But I wanted to reach the young audience. And I guess as you do with, with books, you don't realise till you do it, like if you're going to make an impact or not make an impact. And I kind of realised maybe six months out after I'd released the book that I wasn't kind of reaching that younger audience because mm-hmm. it was too too much information and too much reading. So I decided to have the same concept, obviously, but have it more picture-based. So mm-hmm. each chapter... Has, a, has pictures to do with that particular chapter, whether it's goals, whether it's tools, whether it's focus, whether it's strategy. 
and then after each chapter it has a bit of a one-page workbook section so like the kids can write some information about their own goals their own Mm -hmm. tools their own people in their own network and their own focuses and strategies to to get towards their goals so it gives them a real tangible understanding of where they want to go and how they want to get there and both books is really kind of to to make an influence and kind of share my journey and my experiences and my lessons because at the end of the day we arrive in the world with nothing and we leave with nothing but if we can share these lessons with everyone else then I guess then we've kind of done some good and I guess that's kind of obviously what you're trying to do with this podcast you've had years of experience and if you don't share these lessons with other people it makes it a bit it's sad because then like I guess it's all the learnings are lost at some point Mm, true yeah and so thinking about learnings and you know you had a a 20 plus year career the preliminary phase and then the the full phase that's a pretty long career for any athlete and that longevity doesn't come without a lot of hard work but during that time did you face any major injuries or any major health issues that you had to overcome through that time or was it actually a reasonably smooth 20 years for you I'd say from a sporting injury it was relatively smooth Mm -hmm. I didn't have any major injuries from that point I guess having hydrocephalus which is a result of bleed on the brain I have a shunt um, Mm -hmm. which needs a bit of re-plumbing and re-jigging I guess every couple of years (laughs) and I had had a couple of operations in in Mm -hmm. my 20-year swimming career so I've probably had about five or six shunt operations in my swimming lifespan and Mm -hmm. um, that's always difficult because your balance is out you have to learn to walk again and yeah vertigo is a bit of an issue when having anything to do with the brain uh, and yeah recovery is quite lengthy so those probably five odd operations were quite difficult to come back from Um, Mm -hmm. but swimming has always been really good from a health perspective but for me it was always about health first competing later and Mm -hmm. I guess as I get got more success in my career it was always hard to kind of continue to remember that but I always had to remember where I started back when I was nine eight nine ten learning to swim Um, Mm -hmm. I kind of always had to come go back to that and remember that in those kind of tough times because yeah it it was it was really difficult coming back from from those particular uh, not not sporting injuries but um, those particular surgeries uh, yeah and, and life life injuries and surgeries because yeah like your whole understanding of where you were and where you are is is different and trying I guess get those movement patterns back and and all that kind of stuff that takes a lot of time so and so were you were you sorry were you able to time those surgeries so that they occurred after a competition or did you get not a lot of choice in terms of when the timing of those those surgeries not a lot of choice. Obviously, the shunt doesn't work when it doesn't work. Think, but <laughs> I, was lucky. I was lucky enough that my surgeries kind of fell outside of major competitions. So most of my major competitions in 2007, for example, and again in 2017, which was my two major ones, both fell back end of the year, which was after my major competitions. So just trying to get back for trials, um, which would have been June, July of the following year. Um, which gave me a good lead in time, but it was still hard. And you're still going back to basics, essentially. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was. I was lucky in that I didn't miss any major competitions, but it, it certainly did 
affect me the back end of the year and trying to recover, getting ready for like nationals and making a major team the year after. But it did give me a lot of space and a lot of time to kind of do a slower recovery because I didn't have any major meets until yeah. till the middle of the following yeah. year. And yeah, it was still still difficult. You still had to, I guess, get out of bed when you felt really dizzy and sick and mm-hmm. start walking again and start swimming again more than more than 400 meters to kind of be be competitive and that kind of stuff so it was really that uh, I think it was more of a mental game than anything else and kind of really understanding that sometimes some days you might not be feeling it some days it might just might not happen and yeah it was kind of taking it slow from that respect both physically and mentally. And so can you tell us a bit about what your training was like like how many hours a week would you train and how did you balance that training with studying and working because you've you know obviously you started pretty young so you were still at school and then you've done a university degree and then you've been working so how do you balance all of all of those demands yeah so I trained eight sessions in the pool two gym and two pilates sessions in a given week Mm -hmm. I guess how I managed it throughout my career it was difficult at points, like, for example, when I was at school, uh, my parents dropped me at training in the morning, which would be 5, 5.30. I'd do my training and get the bus to school. Uh, the school was in the city, which was easy enough. And then I'd travel by train about an hour to training in the afternoon. Um, and I'd do that from probably year five. So probably four years of my schooling. Yeah, it was just, I remember trying to not just fall asleep in class, I think. Um, that's probably the main, <laughs> main, main aim. Of, of that and that was I guess kind of probably how I coped with training back then and as I kind of progressed and went to uni and went to work I didn't go to uni straight out of school didn't do so well on my year 12 exams so I had to go through I did night school to do a diploma mm-hmm. of marketing so that was difficult so I'd do a part-time job during the day training in the morning and then go to train in the afternoon and then I'd have dinner and then go to night school for three, four days a week for 12 months. So that was that was really difficult. But yeah, I wanted to, I guess, make something of myself. And I didn't do so well in my year 12 exams. And I kind of wanted to be able to get some kind of accreditation of something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for about 12 months, um, juggling part-time job, which was three days a week. And then three days a week of night school, plus an eight session load yeah. on top of that for, for, for my training and yeah, I guess how I kind of coped with that was really just just getting on with it and really kind of realizing that at the end of the day, no one's going to make it for you in life. It's about you, I guess, putting your best foot forward. And for me, I guess I kind of got through that year of a diploma and then uh, I think I worked for about two years while, while swimming just to give myself a bit of breathing space. Mm-hmm. And then from there... I was lucky enough to get a job through the Paralympic Employment Program from Westpac, Westpac All Bank. Right. Um, yep. So I started there and they were really flexible in terms of the needs for my training. And I was able to work about 30 hours a week mm. there, which was really good. And then, yeah, from there, I kind of realized that I needed to probably get a bit more than a diploma to kind of really understand the terminology and understand what goes on in like the corporate world. So I did a in 2013, which was about a year and a half, two years after I started at Westpac, I did a Bachelor of Business to mm-hmm. add to my Diploma of Marketing. 
yeah, so I did that online through Swinburne Online, which was great. I guess it helped me balance my work and training and I didn't have to like travel to and fro mm, uni, yeah, um, which was good. Yeah. So I com- completed that by 2015. And then from, from there, worked a couple of years and kind of balanced the training and the, the sport and the work. And by then I'd been doing full-time work. So from 2016, um, I'd be working full-time and I decided to do an MBA in 2018. And um, that was, again, that was online through Cranberry University. And we did a internship type program every trimester, which gave us, a I guess, a good kind of grounding and project and experience to kind of incorporate through the, the theory, which is, which is really good. And I guess throughout my whole career, it's really been about balancing everything that I've kind of got on. And I've always felt that I didn't want to just be known for my swimming. I wanted to be known for other things and learn other mm-hmm. skills as well. And I guess yeah. it was a risk because you didn't know how your body and your physical and mentally will be able to handle it. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I always felt that the training was a break from work and the work was a break from training. So it wasn't <laughs> as draining and there was learning different skills and using different parts of the brain rather yeah. than using the same physical athleticism every single time it was um, using different parts of different aspects of of our mind and of my physicality as well so um, yeah. I think that's kind of how I've kind of been able to balance the two throughout I guess my 20 odd year career in different mm. kind of aspects um, whether it's in school whether it's uni whether it's work it's all been kind of the same it's just about approaching everything 100% but using my energies and using the energy to the best of its ability and not not going gun ho straight away, mm-hmm. um, being able to like, manage the energy across the day yeah. and across the activities and things that I kind of know a lot better, going a bit more on autopilot and things that I need to kind of concentrate a bit more, needing to kind of use those energies a bit more and balancing it up that way. Yeah, that's kind of how it came up with the concept, the success framework mm-hmm. that I use in my book. Um, in your book, yeah. kind of helps me um, stay grounded and kind of understand, well, at the end of the day, just because you're passionate and have this goal doesn't mean you need to go 100% all the time. It's about kind of being staying focused and really using your network to help you get to that goal as well. And, but yeah, that's kind of a bit about the rationale and the understanding of what and how I've kind of got to where I've got and that process mentally around it. Mm. And what about from a nutrition perspective? Did you face any major challenges from a nutrition perspective or were you always pretty organized in terms of making like early on when you were going from swimming to to school and then from school on the train to swimming did you pack a lot of snacks was that something that you started really early on and that put you in a good framework for being able to make sure that your nutrition was tied in nicely to everything yeah definitely I think that's the really key I was really good with my food early on yeah, it was really about just being organised, packing my meals the night before, making sure I had enough snacks and knew what I, from a recovery perspective, having recovery meals because there, there was like always half an hour drive from training, all that kind of stuff. So being really organised, I think, is the key to was the key to my nutrition and still mm-hmm. is like making sure that I have everything organised the night before, I have enough fuel in, in, in my food and all that kind of stuff to really make it through the day um, but mm. not just make it through the day make it through what I've got well and be able to do it to the best of its ability and by by doing that 
I needed to have, I guess, nuts and fruit and all the kind of good food that could be able to fuel my body. And I think by starting that early, I don't know the science behind it, but I'd imagine starting it early allowed those cells in my body to be able to be stored and fueled a lot quicker and earlier mm-hmm. in my life. So by having a routine, yep, it definitely allowed me to be better. Yeah, it helped me early on, which was good. Mm. So can you tell us just what a, an average day would have looked like, say, in the latter years of your training, of how you put your food together? Like, do you tend to eat before you go to the pool in the morning or do you tend to wait until afterwards? Like, can you kind of run through what a day might look like food-wise? Yeah, so I usually have muesli or oats before I go to training in the morning. I'd have that pretty early. And then from there, I'd have electrolytes in my drink. During training, I'd have a sausage or some protein post-training. Mm-hmm. Uh, then if I was going to school or, or work, I'd have eggs on toast or, or something like that at a school canteen or, or a cafe, depending on where I am. And then from there, I'd have like a nut mix or banana um, mm-hmm. for like morning tea time and make sure I drink, I drink usually two bottles during the day. Lunch is usually a salad and tuna. From there, usually, again, I might have some tuna or banana before training, mm-hmm. um, depending on if, if I'm where I am. And then, yeah, during training, again, it's water or electrolytes. And then after training, um, I'd usually have something small and then usually have dinner, usually fish and maybe some meat, um, depending on how late the training mm-hmm. was. And then maybe some yogurt and some berries for dessert. Mm. And then, yeah, I'll be in bed by then so that's quite kind of a bit of a rundown of most of my 20 year career has been roughly the same I've kind of I do vary the diet obviously but basically that's kind of the staples in terms of to give me enough nutrition and and whatnot yeah because so multiple small little meals and snacks basically dotted throughout the day rather than just focused on three big meals yeah pretty much Mm, awesome and so did you face any nutrition challenges along the way? Like was there ever a time where you wanted to change your physique, like increase your muscle mass or change your body composition or did or was actually everything reasonably fell into place with the training and just being well organised? Yeah, pretty much. I didn't need to change any of my physique or any of that kind of stuff. So it was pretty, pretty easy from that respect. Cool. What, what do you think the biggest thing you've learnt over that 20-year period that you can put into a really simple, I mean, I know you've got your framework, <laughs> but is there is there a way of kind of one key thing that you learnt over that time that you'll take with you all the way through the rest of your life? I think it's pretty simple. It's probably just being the best version of yourself and being better than you are tomorrow, I think, are the two simple things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's probably what I could take further on in in my life and kind of what I've learned throughout my sport. So Matt, if you had other athletes who are maybe trying to get into swimming or early on in their career, what would Mm -hmm. be one of your biggest recommendations? Like you said that you mentor a lot of younger swimmers. What are some of the, the key things that you talk to them about? I guess it's really being true to yourself. And at the end of the day, we as athletes or as humans, only know what we know and I guess we only know 
ourselves, whether we're doing ourselves justice, whether we're, we're trying the hardest that we can possibly do, whether we're committing the most we could possibly do in whatever we do. So it's really about remembering why you started and remembering, mm-hmm. I guess, that passion that you had for your sport, whatever it is, that can really help you through, I guess, those tough times. Because at the end of the day, this day and age, there's a lot of stuff like social media, there's a lot of lot more politics, there's a lot of more noise um, mm. than there was back when I started and made my first Paralympic Games. We didn't have any Instagram, we didn't have mobile <laughs> phones, really. We didn't have any of that. We called we called our parents on phone cards. So yes. there's a lot more distraction these days. So it's mm. really about remembering why you started and being true to yourself, I think, is the two messages that I kind of talk to the kids by about. Mm. And what about any recommendations that you have for coaches or practitioners in working with Paralympic athletes as opposed to any other athletes? It's really about knowing their history, knowing, I guess, not just what their disability is or what their classification is, but also knowing how they can cope with certain environments and certain things in in the training environment. I think it's very different having a para-athlete. They have a disability, but they also have... I guess, different aspects of the upbringing that are different to, to the average. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's being aware of that and being able to understand well, where they where these people come from, what have they learned in their home environments through their collective network and all that kind of stuff and what can we add or the coach or staff around them add that they don't have, um, whether it's physical, whether it's mental and, yeah, whether it's, whole range of different things and knowing I guess what they can kind of add to their to them as an athlete but also them as a human being I think really the most important thing I would probably recommend from coaches it's not about treating the athletes as athletes it's about treating them as human beings and really kind of understanding that their careers in sport is smaller than their careers as a human Um, Mm -hmm. so setting them up for life success and setting themselves up for the success post their career as well. And I think that's what a lot of coaches and athletes don't really understand that at the end of the day, our sport careers are small compared mm-hmm. to our life at a whole. And yeah, to set yourself up for future success, whatever that looks like is very important. And whether that's doing some study or whether that's learning a trade or whether that's reading some books or mm-hmm. whether that's just having a coffee catch up or a catch up with the person down the road to learn new skills and experience new things I think any of that is valuable and helps you create a I guess your own path and create a better path than when you started and yeah study's not for everyone for example but Mm. there's certainly things that you can do and can learn throughout your athletic career that you are privileged to do and not many people have that opportunity so you might as well use it while you can yeah absolutely did you still love swimming as much this year or you know you finished up at the commonwealth games this year did you love swimming just as much this year as you did back in 2003 when you first started on the national team uh yeah i definitely really still had the passion for it had the drive but i guess i kind of saw that the passion and the drive was being overtaken elsewhere in other aspects, whether it was work and some of the board stuff that I do. So I think once that passion and that drive moves into other areas, like I think as an athlete, you have to be solely focused on what you do 
in the athletic field to be able to get the best out of you. Mm. Um, and yeah, when I guess the passion was shared, it made it difficult to kind of be able to do two things at once. And that's kind of when I decided that it was best to, yeah, make that decision and move on and yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, Matt, I think there's so many things that we could talk to you about, but right now we'll try and finish off with just one final question. So what's your favourite food? I guess my favourite food is chocolate babitas, I think is probably my favourite food because I guess they're not too unhealthy, but they're not <laughs> they're not like a banana. So I guess they're that, that in between. Yeah, I think uh, the last couple of years I probably used that as a snack food or kind of energy type food with semi-good nutrition which has been good. But um, yeah, that's probably my go-to. Cool. I'm just trying to think if we're an international podcast, so I'm just wondering if we need to explain uh, Belvedas. I know you can get Belvedas in, in the US, so maybe not in Europe. So maybe just give us a really quick explanation of what they are. Okay. I guess Belvedas are like a chocolate healthy biscuit. <laughs> You're making it not sound so no. healthy here. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, they got some fruit in them though, don't they? I usually have the chocolate one, which doesn't taste like doesn't... it has fruit. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's it's kind of like a a slightly thickish, soft, scented biscuit. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, 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 yeah. But <laughs> a good energy source and good for your soul at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. I know it's a busy time for you now that you're working full time and, and also it's still doing a lot of promotional and advocacy work for other Paralympians and, and other you know people with impairments. So well done yeah. to you for paying it forward and for giving Thank back you. back to your sport and, and for such a fantastic career. And mm-hmm. thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me um, on the podcast. It's been really great and hopefully your listeners will be able to get some insight and some value, I guess, out of out of some of my answers. I love the way that Matt's taken a really pragmatic and forward-thinking approach to his future beyond sw- his swimming career, even from a really early age. It's taken a lot of dedication and commitment from him to make sure that he can accomplish success in both aspects of his life throughout that 20-year period. And I think that's a great model that he can set up for other athletes. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any suggestions or feedback, please leave that on our website and please share it with your social media. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Rusty Scheiber, who is the National Wheelchair Curling Coach for Team USA.